Recorded live. Hey, it's uh, Mike. I got a little break from my son. His aunt picked him up to take more to his nana's over where they're uh, Hillary Clinton's camp head head uh, campaign quarters are for my area, and uh, told my son, uh, "Just remember, it's bread and circus, or circus of bread, circus of bread." His aunt asked, are you going to vote? I'm like, no. For the first time ever in my adult life that I've never voted. Why is that? Oh, Michael. Anyways. Little St. James is an island of the United States Virgin Islands located east of St. Thomas. Island is privately owned by American financier and convicted sex offender Jeffrey S. Epstein. There is a luxury estate on the island, and it is often used for conferences held by Jeffrey's uh, Epstein the uh, Fourth Foundation, which sponsors cutting-edge science and medical research. Recent conferences have included topics such as gravity, which is a lie, language evolution, global threat to the earth. Oh my gosh, another lie. Oh yeah, uh, Stephen Hawking. Been there. I wonder what a guy who's supposed to be quadriplegic would be doing there. Where they raped him? Side of my sin. I don't know. I imagine they did. Um, <clears throat> Or whoever that person is, I feel sorry for them. Oh, they're exploiting him. Anybody believes that man's done anything, it's pretty naive. Uh, yeah. United States Virgin Islands. <laughs> I wonder why they call it Virgin Islands. Maybe the same reason why they call it Virginia, state of Virginia, or Maryland. Could it be? I don't know. Where has the Pope's been there? He's a he's from that neck of the woods, kind of. The island was named by Christopher Columbus, supposedly, in 1493, for uh, St. Ursula and her virgin followers. The Danish West Indian Company settled in St. Thomas, and we, of course we know that the Jesuits from that. Uh, and they've slave trade, uh, slave labor. <clears throat> A little um, St. James Island is also called a sex slave state, or Orgy Island. Or, or Sex Slave Island or Georgia Island. Where an awful lot of people go. Anyways, not really what I want to talk about, but. All roads lead to Rome, whether we want to believe it or not. It can make much of a difference. 
Of course, we've got Epstein, uh, debased Jew. <clears throat> well, they want to call me a Jew hater. I don't <laughs> hate them, but we have to be honest with what their, you know, that their religion is uh, a pantheistic pagan religion, where they do, and their own Talmud talk about. Uh, worshiping Lucifer, Satan, and uh, degra- uh, degrading our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, this is nothing but the truth. I'm ready to find it. And I found it in my Lord, Jesus Christ. Those who will listen to this show in the future, uh, thank you for listening. And uh, for those uh, who may listen next couple of days, I hope you are not foolish enough to get involved in uh, <clears throat> the uh, Bread and Circus Show, the Illuminati-run spectacle called the Presidential Election for the Corporation of the District of Columbia. Um, they're going to keep throwing stuff at you and throwing stuff at you to agitate you and get you involved. Prepare for the next terrible thing that's going to happen. Mind you, uh, I got a feeling this, uh, special year of a Sabbath for the get going again. Um, yeah, 13 years later. Anyways, uh, let's get on to something else. Um, I get a chance to uh, Listener that's to my show, her name is Kathy. Pray for her that she's having problems with her back and uh, vertebrae, not pain. And I know what it's like to be in a lot of pain. Ugh. I'm in a lot of pain myself. Um. Yeah. What else is new? Uh. Oh yeah. All the spectacle. We got the uh, alleged attempt of assassination of uh, Trump, right? (laughs) Uh, How many things do we believe in that are a lie? You know, I'm going to hopefully it doesn't hit me too hard. I could use it, so You know, I was thinking about reading out of Daniel. And uh, what do I want to read? Daniel 4. 
sent Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Well, there's some more figurative language right there, isn't it? Does anybody really believe that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of all people, nations, and languages that dwelled on the earth? Okay, maybe he did. Or maybe it's just their world, right? Peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders of the high God hath wrought unto me. The signs and wonders that he brought unto them. Okay. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is everlast is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. Well, this is one good thing to read in there is that we know that God's kingdom is everlasting. His dominion is from generation to generation. So, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my home house, flourishing in my palace. My house, my palace. Okay. I, uh, I was... Uh, I, and was he living in a palace, by the way, or did he just call his house his palace? Like when you call your own house, it's your palace. I usually figure spitch again. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and visions of my head troubled me. So was his thoughts literally upon his bed, or was his... <laughs> I don't think so. Therefore, uh, I made a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me. Let me see, this is something with Nebuchadnezzar, right? Peace be multiplied unto you. So apparently Nebuchadnezzar felt that he was the king of all people and nations and languages. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and I th the thought upon my head, bed, and the vision of my head hurt, troubled me. Therefore, I uh, therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me. Well, they're not supposed to, either they didn't have very many wise men back then, or. Uh, he must have had one busy day. That they might make, no, make known unto me the interpretation of my dream. Then came the magicians and the ast astrologers and Chaldeans and soothsayers. And I, you think these are the people that our political uh, elite uh, go to today? I bet you. I bet you nothing's changed. And soothsayers and told uh, the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But at last Daniel came in before me, who's... Um, I gotta rephrase that, so I just shot myself in the foot, didn't I? 
And I was saying that about the palace in my house, it was Nebuchadnezzar talking. So we know it would be a palace, right? Most likely. I was thinking it was Daniel's house. I get that completely wrong. My apologies. All right. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar. Shazar, Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Before him I told the dream, saying, Whom is the spirit of the holy gods? Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the vision of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. The master of the magicians. Thus were the uh, visions of my head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven. And the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beast of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof. And all the flesh was fed, all flesh was fed of it. And I saw the visions of my head or in my head, excuse me, of my head. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches, and shake off his leaves and scatter the fruit. Let the beast get away from under it, and the fowls from the branches. Nevertheless, the leaves of the stump, nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth. Even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field. And let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth and let his heart be changed from man's and let the beast's heart be given unto him and let seven times pass over him this matter is by the decree of the watchers 
the watchers. Huh? And demand uh, by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basis of men. Really? This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had seen, now thou, O Belteshazzar, uh, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished, or stoned, the astoned, for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. And the king spake and said, Belteshazzar, Sajar, Shazar, excuse me. Let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heavens, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair <clears throat> and fruit thereof much, and in it was meat of all for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, upon whose branches the fowls of heaven and their uh, had their habitation. It is thou, O king, that art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reaches unto heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw, uh, saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven, saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, and the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree from the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men. They dwelling shall, thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, 
and they shall make thee to eat the eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee, after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities, by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. All this came upon the king of Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve twelve months, he walked in his palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, It is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power, for honor of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. They shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. That same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven, and my uh, my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from the generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, none can say his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven, who all whose works are truth, 
His ways, judgment. Those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Certainly is able to abase. That's a figurative language in that, isn't it? Cool. Pretty cool stuff. All right. Um, Back into this book uh, by Emmett Scott, uh, Muhammad, and Charlemagne Revisited. The History of a Controversy. All praise and glory go to our Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. Thank you, you're in charge, and we're not. And, uh, yeah, it might be a good idea the next couple of days to be, uh, think about it and start praying for uh, the people that live with us in the corporation called the United States of America and the United States, and that he be merciful. And I pray right now, God, that you be merciful. Also, help out, uh, help out uh, Kathy. She's got some problems with her, some vertebrae in her back or spine that's causing her a lot of pain. Almighty God, be merciful to her. Thank you for Jesus, Heavenly Father. Thank you for the blessings you give us and you give me. Thank you that I have a little place to stay. Thank you for the, the sound of the running water in the fish tank. It's like listening to a, a little water. It's like listening to a water fountain or a waterfall. Thank you for the birds, the beautiful flowers. Why it's uh, November 6th and still butterflies. That's nice. That's very nice. Almighty God, exposed to all the lies. Bring the truth to the forefront in your truth, God, and remove us realize there's only one that we can turn to you, Heavenly Father. Hallelujah is your name. Isn't that interesting? You know, they talk about satellites and how they got 20,000 of them up there, supposedly. Yeah, they never can figure out the number. They got all those lines up there. The geoengineering and all that. I wonder how that affects everything, huh? Yeah. What do they call Tropa? Tropa scatter or something like that, technology, something like that. That's just towers. That's all they've ever been using for 60 years now, 70 years. Just towers. That's why everywhere you go, there's a tower. You've noticed that? Everywhere you go now, there's more and more towers. <clears throat> of course, they say, well, they're going to use it as a military weapon on us, and I imagine they i figure a way to do that. But the reason why your cell phones work is because of the cell towers. Not the satellites. There's no such thing as satellites. Those are high-altitude planes and uh, computer-generated imagery. All right. Archaeology of Italy and North Africa, Part 2. At first glance, the evidence presented by Hodges and White House 
from Carthage and central Italy appears impressive. Excavations in both areas seem to have uncovered a terminal decline in economic activity and even in population during the 5th and 6th centuries. Yet, a closer look reveals deep flaws in the author's thinking. Let's look first at, uh, first of all, at Carthage. According to Hodges and Whitehouse, Carthage was in a pitiful state by the beginning of the 7th century. They quoted Henry Hurst, who noted that, quote, late burials occur commonly within the former area of Carthage, as in other sites in Byzantine, Byzantine Africa, and are conventionally interpreted as representing a late stage of decline. Economically and in terms of population, when large areas of the city were uh, redundant and the traditional regulations required burial areas to be outside the city walls were relaxed. Hearst here does not specifically date this degraded epoch before the Islamic invasion. Yeah. I hate to say that, you know, I got some Islamic friends. I have people, actually people in my world, the, some of the nicest people are Islamic. At least to me, personally. But, uh, could it be possible that the Jesuits and the Talmudic Jews that run our world and all the other ones out there are using this as part of the third world war epic that they want to create themselves that being bringing a bunch of uh, Islamic Mohammedist refugees in Western and Western Europe and uh uh, the United States to agitate, foment, and irritate the populace, and do this all snuffing out of each other. Get rid of this all. Seems like there's a problem when uh, Islamic countries actually show up to a place, or uh, Islamic powers. It's not. It's the complete opposite. I used to be one of those people that bought into the fact that uh, they, they brought so much culture to Western Europe. But as we go along, I got a feeling that we're going to discover that is not the case. Anyways, back to this. Hearst here does not specifically date this degraded epoch before the Islamic invasion. And, but Hodges and Whitehouse nonetheless strive to portray it as such by their uh, comment. Quote, a further building over this graveyard has been interpreted as the home of refugees from the Arabs. 
who arrived in the province in 695-698. By then, the city was only a shadow of its former self and must have resembled a decaying industrial town, uh, a decay, decaying industrial towns, with which today we in the West are beginning to become familiar. It is striking that Hodges and White House produced no evidence to support their contention that the decaying city uncovered by Hearst and the last phase of the settlement was a pre-Islamic city. Think about Detroit, Michigan, today. Think about demographics and think about population. In fact, evidence to be examined below would strongly suggest that this declining and crumbling car- uh, Carthage was all that remained of the once brilliant metropolis in the immediate aftermath of the Islamic conquest. Think about Detroit, Detroit, Michigan. Also, think about what I read earlier, too, about Nebuchadnezzar and worshiping the Most High God, the true and living God, the only God that rules in heaven and earth. And we're in a dilemma. We are in a dilemma where if we understand that this and life, this the mortal plane, the physical plane that we live on, is governed by the spiritual plane. Spiritual always overrides the temporal. Then we must understand a few things. There are gods, demigods, and then there's the God. And many of these false gods are actually fallen angels and demonic entities. And we, by allowing this quote-unquote Religious freedom, um, there's a problem. And I can't believe I'm talking this way because, well, like I say, his praise go to, uh, you know, Jehovah, Yahweh, um, the Most High, our Heavenly Father, and Jesus Christ, his Son. Um, we're going to if people, large masses of people are uh, how do I say this? Well, I'll just be honest about it. I just, are they they're worshiping false gods and they're bringing their curse with them on us. And uh, Yeah, I think we're 
Our, our, our leaders are so blinded, either because they're Satanists or they do understand the spiritual implications and how the spiritual always overrides the temporal. That they, they, they uh, truly want to absolutely destroy this corporation, bring it to its knees, and eradicate true followers of God. But... Uh, God's not going to allow that. He's not going to allow that. He's not going to allow it. And I think we've been wrong about a lot of things. So I'm the I'm first to be guilty, but I just know one thing is, um, I want to put my I want to put my faith in them. I'm going to put my faith in anything that's going on in the this world. Absolutely. The only thing you can count on it is truth in Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father. That He really, He's there. He's up there. He is. He's got His watchers watching us. And praise Heavenly Father for that. Even when we sin, what makes you feel so guilty and terrible. And thank you to God that we have that. And now being indwelled by a whole bunch of a legion of the fallen angels. Oh, praise you, God. Praise Jesus Christ. Somehow about saying Jesus Christ, somehow it just seems to even drive the evil the evil ones away. So anyways, um, and certainly agitates uh, all the uh, the pagans out there, the, the spirits that indwell them, the uh, which includes Catholicism, uh, the Orthodoxism, most of uh, what we call Protestant religion. In fact, most of all, absolute all religion, <laughs> it turns out, is just a, one form or another. Uh, paganism, polyethism. The proposition that the classical economy and Mediterranean trade terminated around 600 A.D., the idea opened upon which, excuse me, uh, Hodges and Whitehouse's thesis ultimately stands or falls, presents a glaring problem, which caused this, what caused this uh, termination? Marine at least proposed a mechanism, Muslim fleets of raiders and pirates, by which economic activity could have been interdicted. Hodges and Whitehouse offer no such mechanism. What happened around the year 600 to cause such a collapse? Since deep antiquity, Western Europe had maintained economic relations with the Eastern Mediterranean, Spanish, and Britain, as well as bronze to Central Europe and amber, uh, uh, not to, bronze 
from Central Europe and amber from the Baltics have been found in the tombs of the pharaohs and the cities of Assyrians, of the Assyrians. Even the most corrupt and decrepit political institutions were presumably allowed some kind of economic activity, if only out of self-interest. Was there nothing in Western Europe after 600 A.D. that the people of the Levant required? Was there nothing that the Levant could supply that the wealthy classes who ruled Spain, Gaul, and Britain, and Italy would want? Such a scenario strikes one a profoundly improbable, yet this is precisely what is proposed by Hodges and White House. The only attempt to ex- at explanation comes on page 53, where they suggest that Europe in the 6th century may have had a parallel and the 16th century South Africa. Rephrase it, South America. Where the conquistadors not only slaughtered on a massive scale, but also destroyed the traditional social and economic systems. The result of this, they say, was indeed generalized demographic collapse. In the Mediterranean, they continue, quote, the structure of Roman society and his economy were undermined, and its wealth was absorbed by two centuries of intermediate warfare, warfare, end quote. This hardly constitutes an explanation of anything. The very point of Perrine's study was to show that the structure of Roman society and its economy were not undermined at all in the 5th or 6th century, and the survival of undefended Rome villas into the late 16th century suggests that he was absolutely right. As regards the two centuries of intermediate warfare in the 5th and 6th centuries, these were hardly unusual. Rome had arguably been involved in far more destructive uh, I can't say it. Enter the season. I forget. And it's destructive wars during the first and second century BC. Oh, sorry about this. Nician, Nician, enter, Nician. I don't know what that means. I got to look that one up. Probably not saying it right, anyways. As usual, my tongue won't move and my brain don't work. Yet there, these had not caused the collapse of the Roman civilization. If we return to the question of Carthage, we detect striking flaws in Hodges and White House's 
methodology and conclusions. They emphasize, for instance, the decline in the occurrence of foreign uh, amphorias and coins in the decades after Justinian's reconquest of the city. Yet this does not necessarily imply a dying society. After all, the authors themselves admit that between circa 400 and circa 225, or excuse me, circa 400 and circa 425, only about 10% of the amphoras found at the city were of eastern origin, which means essentially that by the late decades of the 6th century, the situation had reverted to what it was in the first decades of the 5th. Furthermore, the excavator himself, Fulford, did not see in this evidence of a terminal decline. He suggests that Quote, once the province was released from its obligations to Rome after 425 under the Vandals, it was possible to sustain a lively trading relationship with various parts of the Mediterranean. However, once Justinian reconquered the city, it was again burdened with taxes. Commercial life diminished, and the corn sold. Corn, that's right, corn sold for private luxuries under the Vandals was re requested. Requestation, requisition. Excuse me, uh, to meet the needs of. The state, end of quote. In other words, this was an economic recession, not a collapse of civilization. Usually, a collapse of civilization is such is required war. And genocide. That's right, genocide, deliberate killing of masses of people. That's right. In other words, this was an economic recession, not a collapse of civilization. Even more serious, however, is Hodges and White House's failure to spell out the criteria by which the coins and amphoras, or amphorays, were dated. Their statements is simply that virtually all Eastern coins and amphorays disappeared from Carthage by about 680. The operative term here uh, is about. And I would suggest that with this word, the authors are committing an act of uh, ledger domain. 
Ledger Domain. Or Lager Domain, whatever that means. That's another word. On their readers. Everyone agrees that Carth uh, has continued to function as a Roman-style uh, city until its conquests by the Arabs in 698. Presumably, then, from 533, mention that, uh, when Justinian brought the region back under the imperial control until 698, the metropolis continued to use amphorae and imperial coinage. If the dramatic decline, in quotes, in eastern coins and amphorae covers all the years from 533 to 698, rather than 533 to 600, as Hodges and Whitehouse strive to imply, then all becomes clear. The Persian conquest of Syria in 614 and Egypt in 619 plus devastation of Asia Minor and the years between severely disrupted commerce throughout the whole Levant from that time onward. The coins of Herculeus, the emperor of the time, are regularly found in great hordes and the lay and lasted and latest of these dating from 619 or 620 are virtually the last Byzantine coins found anywhere in the Near East for another 300 years. Uh, 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 300 years. The club of 300. This being the case, it is clear that if the total tally of the coins and amphorae takes in all the years between uh, three, uh, 533 and 698, then we should not be surprised to find a, quote, dramatic, and a, quote, decline. The more years that are added after the real point of disappearance, namely 619 or 620, then the lower the average number of foreign amphorites and coins there will be. If we combine Hearst's explanation for the decline and the years between 533 and 620, with the knowledge uh, that imperial commerce virtually disappears after the violent events of, of the later years, or latter years, then all is explained. There was no gradual decline, in quotes, of the classical civilization at Carthage. There was a sudden and dramatic disruption, a disruption caused by violent events further to the east. Yeah. Doesn't look like, doesn't look like they're having too bad of a time. What is that humming noise? 
One second. It's my headphones. How am I having a headphone humming? You guys stop humming me. You guys there on the internet, leave my headset alone, will you? Thank you. Okay, where were we at in all this? Oh, concomitant uh, with the the claim that trade between the Western Mediterranean and the East ended around 600. Cogs, Hodges, and White House, we have seen argued that the population of Western Europe and Western Mediterranean had been falling dramatically since the 3rd century, the process that continued into the 6th and early 7th century, they admitted that they admitted to a brief economic and perhaps population recovery in the West during the 5th and early 6th century, but asserted that by the mid-6th century, this had come to an end, and all Western civilization went into terminal decline. The demographic question is fundamental to understanding Hodge's and White House's thinking. That there was a serious uh, problem, one that can be traced back to the second or perhaps even the first century is beyond question. As we saw earlier, the Romans themselves were well aware of this issue, and the population decline has been confirmed in the western provinces, at least by the evidence of archaeology, which shows shrinking cities and a cessation of new buildings from the late 2nd century onward. We have seen, too, now, Constantine's legalizing and fostering of the Christian faith may have had as one of its goals the amelioration of the birth rate problem. Uh, None of this is denied. The crucial question is this. Did the decline which commenced and the 2nd or 3rd century continue into the 5th and 6th century, and did Christianity and the Christianization of Europe fail to halt it? According to Hodges and White House, the answer is yes. And this is what all, all the big thing about the Dark Ages is, to make Christianity look worse than it actually is. According to uh, Hodges and Whitehouse, the answer is yes. We have seen how, using evidence primarily from central Italy, Spain, as we have seen is ignored and Gaul, as well as Britain, are barely mentioned. The authors claim to find grounds for believing that the population of Western 
provinces had declined by perhaps 80% between the middle of the 3rd and the end of the 6th century. If true, such a circumstance would certainly confirm the author's conviction that classical civilization was terminally ill and hardly needed to be killed off by Arabs. But an assertion of such sweeping implications needs abundant proofs, whereas the author's argument is in fact based on two more than uh, on little more than the evidence from Italy, particularly from Roman Campane, Campagna, Roman Campagna. All right, uh, alluded to in the previous chapter, archaeologists we recall found a sharp decline in the occurrence of the high quality of imported pottery known as African red slip ware from the 3rd to the 7th century. That decline began around 200 AD, was fairly precipitous after 350 AD, and by 600 AD, only a few sites contained the expensive ceramics. Hodges and Whitehouse considered the various alternatives as to what this might mean, but came down in favor of the idea that idea that it indicated a dramatic fall in population as a whole. And from this, they extrapolated that the whole of Western Europe and North Africa was involved in a similar process. They admitted in passing that a great many other academics had considered this question and addressed it at length, and that almost invariably they had rejected the notion of a demographic collapse taken in the whole of Western Europe. Of these, only two names were mentioned. C.R. Whittaker and C.J. Whitham. Hodges and Whitehouse make no attempt to explain Whittaker's and Whitham's thinking, though they quote Wickham's Oh, it's Wickham, not Whit, not Whitham. It's Wickham, and Whittaker and Wickham statement that quote generalized demographic collapse is a difficult enough process to imagine, let alone locate in evidence. And I quote, as well as he his claim that quote historical sources dot 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 in the eighth century primarily. The Liber Fiscalis, I guess that would be, gave no impression that the countryside had been abandoned. End of quote. From this, Hodges and Whitehouse give the impression that 
Whittaker and Wickham rejected the idea of population collapse was based solely on a reading of early medieval documents. But this was far from being the case. In fact, both Whittaker and Wickham considered the archaeological evidence from Italy in detail, and they duly noted the decline in an African red slip wear between the 4th and 6th centuries. However, they also, unlike Hodges and White House, considered the political history of Rome between the 3rd and 6th century, and having done so, concluded that the occurrence of luxury items and villas surrounding Rome occurs precisely with what we know of the eternal city's fortunes during this epoch. They emphasize that between the 4th and 6th century, the balance of power in the Roman Empire shifted decisively to the east with the founding of Constantinople in 324 AD. By the beginning of the 5th century, Rome was no longer even the capital of the Western Empire, her place having been taken by Ravenna. Didn't know that, did you? I didn't know that. The city was then sacked twice in the same century in 410 by Alaric and his Visigoths and 455 by the Genseric or Jesseric and his Vandals. With the... Uh, <sighs> really? That takes days to look at. But the city's... All right. Uh, with the abolition of the Western Empire in, the, in 476, the prestige of the city suffered further. And after the invasion of Italy by the Lombards in 568, Rome seems to have been reduced to little more than an average-sized provincial town. The country villas around Rome, which imported luxurious, like luxuries like red slipware, in the second and third centuries, were owned by members of the Roman aristocracy. With the with the precipitate decline of the aristocracy along with Rome's fortunes and population in the 4th to 6th centuries, we would expect, says Whittaker and uh, Wickham, nothing else than a dramatic drop in the wealth of the settlements around the city. And that is precisely what we do find. It is important to remember that Rome, unlike other great cities of antiquity, such as Alexandria and Constantinople, did not occupy a position that would naturally have guaranteed her wealth and prosperity. She stood 
a no trading crossroads. She owned her vast wealth and population to her, or owed her vast wealth and population to her military prowess and to her political importance. With the decline of these, her population would naturally have dwindled. We should note at this point that from at least the first century, Rome's population was inflated by hundreds of thousands of economically inactive persons. Aside from the aristocrats themselves, there were armies of bureaucrats and courtiers surrounding the emperor, huge numbers of soldiers, and a vast host of unemployed plebeians who had to be supported by a social security system, which Rome's, Romans named the Dole. Europeans still call it the Doe, Doe and uh, especially, uh, I know for a fact, uh, Europe, uh, England does. If I have to be honest with you, I'm on the Doe. Thanks to multiple sclerosis. This vast, unproductive population could only be maintained by the importation into the city on an annual basis of enormous quantities of grain and other foodstuffs from Egypt and North Africa. Clearly, Rome, at its height of the empire, housed a population that was far and away in excess of anything that could be maintained by normal systems of trade and agriculture. With the decline of the city as a political power, the great majority of this population would naturally have disappeared. Italy then, particularly central Italy, was far from being typical of the provinces and territories that made up the Western Empire. To attempt to use the fate of the wealthy settlements in the uh, in the inference of uh, Rome as a microcosm for what happened in Gaul, Spain, and North Africa in the 4th to 6th century, as Hodges and Whitehouse did, can not only strike one as disingenuous. The situation in Italy was untypical also in the damage done from the middle of the 6th century onward by Justin's disastrous war against the Ostrogoths and by the subsequent conquest of the peninsula by the Langobards. Langobards. Both these events caused enormous disruption a disruption we would naturally expect to be reflected in the 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 archaeological record. The Langobards 
invasion marked the last barbarian conquest of the Western European territory, and it can only have been re- it can only have resulted in conditions very similar to those that obtained in Italy during the early invasion of the Visigoths under Alaric. Mm. Alaric. <clears throat> Thus, Italy was the expectation rather than the rule. Oh, let me try this again. Thus, Italy was the exception rather than the rule in the, the late 6th century Europe. The idea that Western Europe as a whole was a deep populated wasteland in the late 6th century is flatly is flatly contradicted by the archaeology which we shall examine in due course by the copious written sources which tell of thriving economies and trade in the Frankish regions of Gaul and Germany and in the Visigothic territories of Spain. Furthermore, we cannot be sure of the true scale of the population collapse outside of Rome, even in Italy. It is true that the number of wealthy villas which could afford African red slip wear declined dramatically. This would indicate a reduction in the number of Villas, probably as a result of a few landowners buying more and more land, but such a situation does not necessarily indicate a reduction of the overall population. We must presume the large landowners would have wished to profit from their holdings. Empty and uncultivated land does not produce wealth. Agriculture at that time was extremely labor-intensive, so there must have been substantial populations of tenant farmers upon the estates. These peasants would have left little in the way of archaeology to mark their existence. Just a hundred and fifty years ago, Ireland supported an enormous population of tenant farmers who labored for a small number of big landowners and Roman Catholics. Of this population scarcely a trace now remains for they had few metal tools and their sh- uh, shacks were frequently built and little more than turf. Sounds terrible. Yet they produced a vast wealth for the landed gentry of the country. It is by no means impossible that the same situation pertained in Italy during the 6th and early 7th century. There is no other factor to be considered. 
during the empire's large numbers of people, both in the cities and in the countryside, were supported one way or another by the state. As we noted earlier, the legions, together with their um, ancillary staff, injected huge amounts of cash into the provinces. Though with the abolition of the Western Empire and the dissolution of the state's apparatus, this cash flow came to an abrupt end. Yeah. And when you think about it, when you think about, for example, you know, in another reading we're doing, or I'm doing, about, you know, Jerusalem before it fell, uh, we haven't got to that point yet or talked about it very much, but if you think about it, the legions, uh, I mean, they said, uh, oh gosh, it was about 60,000 uh, soldiers sent to Jerusalem, and then, uh, was it another, uh, I think they represented like 20% of the total people that showed up uh, to Jerusalem because they needed supply trains and all sorts of people um, to help the soldiers, to feed the soldiers, you know, bring water, supplies, uh, engineers, uh, somebody to cut down the trees and everything else, and uh, it was just uh, warfare at the scale of like sieging uh, Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. There had never been anything that was seen that way before. There was nothing. It was a war, and 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 that time that it had never been seen on Earth. And since, especially if you're talking about the Roman Empire, is the Earth? That's what they're talking about. I guess we're just not that important, but it's not much fun to realize you're just not that important. But I guess in other ways it's relief. There's one other factor to consider. During the empire, large numbers of people, both in the cities and the country, were supported in one way or another by the state. As we noted earlier, the the, uh, legions, uh, together with their ancillary staff, injected huge amounts of cash into the provinces. Though with the abolition of the Western Empire and dissolution of the state's apparatus, this cash flow came to an abrupt end, yet it was this currency which enabled local tradesmen and other middle-ranking classes to purchase a few of life's luxuries. Hey, it's like today, isn't it? Such a high quality of pottery from Africa. The end of the Roman state would thus naturally have signaled the decline in the occurrence of luxury imports in the provinces. But this would certainly not provide a relapse into barbarism or a population apocalypse. Indeed, a new political situation may actually have stimulated local manufacturers and artisans whose businesses had hitherto been depressed by cheap, high-quality imports. This, that's such a, that's, that such a economic upturn did in fact occur towards the end of the sixth century is seen 
and the proliferation of new church buildings, which marked the dec- marked the decades immediately before and after the year 600. This was true of the territories ruled both by the uh, Langobards, Langobards, and the Byzantines. That Rome alone counted six surviving 7th century churches. These are uh, St. Agnes Fieri el Mura, St. Gregory and Veladro, uh, St. Lorenzo and Miranda, St. Luca, a Martina, St. Mary and Dominica, and Santa. Oh, that was not. Did I say Santa? I've been, I've been saying things. Like Santa Mary and Dominica, and Santa Marie and uh, Saint Marie ad Martyrs outside of Rome. The picture is similar with new churches and civic and structures continuing to appear until the middle of the seventh century. The Langobards Queen. Uh, the Theodelida, Theodelida, I guess, um, uh, 570 to 628, was a particularly active builder who is known to have commissioned numerous churches in Lombardia, Lombardy and Lombardy and Tuscany. Amongst these, we may note the celebrated Cathedral of Monza in 603, as well as the first baptistry of Florence. The famous treasure of Monez, housed in the cathedral, contains uh, the iron crown of the Lombardy and the Thecca Persica enclosing the text of the Gospel of John. Yeah, it's a pretty tense looking place, sir. Uh, on the whole, the early years of the 7th century seem to have been an extremely active and in innovative epic of Italian architecture. It was then, for example, that there appeared the Campanile I guess a Campanile or Bell Tower, a remarkable and striking feature of the church of church design. Some of these, such as those at Sat Apollinar and Ravina are extremely large and elaborate, complete with arched windows and various levels. Such bell towers spread quickly throughout Europe and were the inspiration of similar structures in Gaul and the famous Round Tower in Ireland. Two regions that also seem to experience 
remarkable revival of art and architecture in the late 6th and earliest centuries. None of this is mentioned by Hodges and Whitehouse. Perusal of the archaeology of these epic, this epic, does not then leave one with the impression of a declining and exhausted civilization. It is true, however, that after the middle of the seventh century, all building and indeed archaeology of any kind became extremely scarce in Italy, as it does throughout Europe. This goes back to this 300 years. Outside of Italy, we find a similar pattern in Gaul, Spain, and elsewhere. There is strong archaeological evidence to show that trade and industry survived and even flourished in the late 6th and early 7th century. That the peoples of the Levant still valued the products of northern and western Europe, which they had been importing since remote antiquity, is proved beyond question by the discoveries made north of the Alps and in Britain. It is to this evidence that we now turn. And that was the end of that chapter, chapter 5, I believe it was, part 5. The next one is Gaul and the Central in Central Europe in the 6th century. <clears throat> well, ta-da! Well, there's a lot of things in this world that are not what they told us was. Okay, this has uh, been Michael Adams, Nothing But the Truth. Allegedly, it is November the 6th, 2016. Two days to your uh, charade, your charade of election. And I hope you do not waste your time doing such a thing. But if you do, be not surprised what the outcome is going to be. God bless, by the way, and take care of yourselves. Trust in the Lord, and not in politicians or politics, not in men, but uh, put your faith in God. If you want to be a really great magician, that's what you do. Don't sell your soul to the devil for some cheap stunts, such as maybe someday you could float on air. when you can spend an attorney with God. <laughs>